go. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Uh, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Uh, and we say that every week because uh, that's a, a fundamental thing we want you to know. There are two primary ways that we can miss out on the gospel, that we can miss out on Jesus. Uh, one is by thinking that our sin is too great, by thinking that we're too messed up for anyone to love us. Uh, and another way that we can miss Jesus is by thinking that God loves us because we're so good. Uh, and the gospel is a third way between those two where we are received because of the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what we want to remind you of every week at RUF. Uh, in this semester, we've been going through a sermon series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' kind of uh, greatest hit sermon. It's from Matthew 5 through 7. This is actually the last week of this part of our sermon series. Um, so we're finishing up this week, and then we'll be doing our Advent service, as we've already talked about next time. So we're going to be looking at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount this week. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us what it means to live the good life. He's telling us what it means to live the good life, to follow him in a world that often doesn't feel very good. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we can get started. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for uh, this time that we can be together um, and can uh, reflect on your word uh, and, um, yeah, learn. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, uh, that you would meet us where we are. I know many of us here tonight are tired. Um, it's a busy point in the semester. Uh, people are just really wanting to get to the end. Um, so, Lord, I just pray that you would meet us where we are, um, that you would be gentle to us, and that you would show us uh, mercy. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this time last year, my wife Molly and I were looking for our first house uh, since we've been married. So we, we had been renting pretty much our entire marriage, and we finally decided that we wanted to buy a house. And so we had been touring a whole bunch of houses this time last year, I think like 20 or 30 of them, and we, couldn't, like, we just couldn't find a house that we really liked. Uh, until finally, about, I think it was actually this week last year, we found this house that we loved. Uh, it was a beautiful, like, historic three-story house, had this amazing front porch. Uh, it had this, like, kind of original, ornate woodwork everywhere. It was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it had this dining room that had a vaulted ceiling on it. Like, there were so many pros to this house. But there was one con... Uh, when we went down to the basement, the, the wall in the basement was a little bit bowed, and I had never seen anything like that, so we asked our realtor what that meant. And she said, well, it could be nothing, or it could be a sign that there's problems with the foundation. Uh, the only way you can know is you need to make an offer on the house, uh, and then you get an inspection. And the inspection can tell us, uh, you know, if we're going to have to figure out stuff with the foundation. So we went home that night, Molly and I were thinking about it, praying about it, trying to decide if this is the house that we wanted, uh, and we decided that we wanted this house. We decided this was the house for us, we want to put an offer in. So we wake up the next morning, I text our realtor, and she responds that someone immediately after us had already put an offer in, and it was accepted, and the house was now off the market. And we were really, really bummed, because this was a great house that we thought was going to be really perfect for us. 
And so we continued looking and ended up finding the house that we are currently in. But before we found that house, uh, we saw that this house that we originally wanted was back on the market about two weeks later. And the only difference was it was selling for about $25,000 less than it was originally. Uh, apparently, what had happened was someone had gotten under contract, they had done the inspection, and they found out that the foundation was awful, uh, that there were cracks. You see, the foundation of a house, it, it's crucial to its structural integrity. It doesn't matter how beautiful the house is. If it doesn't have a solid foundation, it's not going to be beautiful for long. In the passage that we're looking at tonight, uh, Jesus speaks on these two houses and their foundations. He, at first glance, both of these houses that Jesus describes, they look the same. But uh, one is built on a sandy foundation and another is built on a rock-solid foundation. Jesus is using this image as an illustration to, to kind of speak about our lives. He's using this illustration to speak about the things that we base our lives on. What's the foundation of our lives? And Jesus points out that there are really only two foundations that a person can base their life on. So as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to just ask the question, uh, what foundation are you building your life on? What foundation are you building your life on? And the two answers we're going to see in this passage is, first, the sandy foundation of self, and second, the solid foundation of Christ. So the sandy foundation of self and the solid foundation of Christ. First off, let's consider the, the sandy foundation of self. Uh, Jesus begins this passage in verse 21. I'll drop that. Uh, with kind of a very scary verse. He starts off saying, uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus here is speaking about uh, judgment. He's speaking about uh, kind of the end of all things, where he is going to be the one who, who judges people, who decides uh, essentially who's in and who's out. Uh, and Jesus is saying that not everyone who calls on him is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Instead, those who call on him and who do the will of his Father who is in heaven. And Jesus then moves on in this passage to kind of sketch out two pictures of these two types of people. Uh, the people who build on sand and those who build on the rock. So first off, what does it look like to build your foundation on the sand? Uh, Jesus kind of picks this up in verse 22. He says, On that day, meaning the, the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Uh, so Jesus is describing one of these types of people, a person who built their foundation on the sand. Uh, and what is, what is this person like? What can we tell from what they say here? Well, I think the first thing that we've got to recognize is that this person uh, clearly knows who Jesus is. They refer to Jesus as Lord. They don't refer to Jesus just as a teacher or as a really nice person. They refer to him as Lord, meaning like king. They recognize his authority. So this is an orthodox confession. This is a, a correct recognition that Jesus is Lord. But not only are they, do they have this orthodox confession, we see that they're also emotionally engaged. They don't just say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. Uh, in the ancient world, if you repeat someone's name twice, that, that's kind of a tip-off for like eagerness. 
Like you're, you're eagerly seeking someone if you say their name twice. This person not only recognizes that Jesus is Lord, they are emotionally engaged. They are pursuing him. And then even more than that, they're, they're active in ministry. It says, uh, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Uh, these are all extremely visible ways at the time that uh, you could kind of prove that you know Jesus. Uh, Jesus' disciples would have been doing these three things. This is what it would have looked like to follow Jesus in a very visible way. And they're doing all of these things in the name of Jesus. It says, in your name, three times in this verse. So, so this sort of person is orthodox. They call Jesus Lord. They're emotionally engaged and they're active in ministry. How does Jesus respond to this person? We see in verse 23, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness or worker of evil. Why in the world would Jesus respond that way to a person who seems to have it together? A person who seems to know who Jesus is and care about that. Why would Jesus respond that way? I think in order to understand that, we need to look back at what they said maybe a little bit closer. And I think there are at least three reasons why Jesus is responding this way to these people. Uh, I think the first is, if you look at what is said here, uh, it kind of has a feeling of entitlement to it. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? There's this sense of entitlement. It's as if what they're saying is, didn't I do all of the right stuff? There's this sense of, it it seems like you owe me this. Like, I did this, I did this, I did this, and it was all in your name. You owe me this. So there's a sense of entitlement. Another thing to note is that they list all of these very external works. These external things like prophesying, casting out demons, and doing mighty works. Uh, What's notably absent is secret obedience, the sort of obedience that Jesus has encouraged his followers to have thus far, praying to your father who is in secret, giving in such a way that you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, fasting and not drawing attention to yourself. You see, there's this performative sense to the things that they're doing. And then finally, I mean, when you look at it, there's a strong sense of ego here, Uh, It it says that we've done many mighty works in your name. There's kind of this sense of this sort of person is kind of incredulous when Jesus rejects them. Like, how in the world could you reject me? Like, I've done so many things for you. I've done so many good Christian things. You know how many times I've had like a quiet time in the last week. It's 15. It's more than two a day. What are you doing? You see, Jesus is saying that their obedience is flimsy. It's flimsy. It's not as deep as they project that it is. And he points this out in verses 26 and 27. Uh, He kind of sketches out an image of what this sort of person is like. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. See, what Jesus is saying here is that this sort of person's uh, preoccupation with self 
keeps them from actually following Jesus. Even though they're doing many of the things that legitimate Jesus followers are doing, they're doing it in a self-serving way. They're doing it in a way to draw attention to themselves. They're doing it in a way so that they can actually stay away from Jesus, paradoxically. And Jesus likens this to building a house on a bad foundation. The image here is of an absolutely beautiful house that looks the same as the one next to it. But the problem is, it's built on a terrible foundation, and it's going to fall down. Jesus says it's inevitable that such a house will fall. When the winds blow and beat against the house, it will fall, and great will be the fall of it. So this is the sandy foundation of self. Uh, How do we know if this is our foundation? How do we know if we're building our house on the sand? I think first off, uh, maybe a tip might be that our external lives are going to look not only good, but suspiciously good. Your life will look suspiciously good. Uh, You'll be the type of person who is always there for people. You probably don't have any boundaries whatsoever. Uh, You'll always be the person who is looked to for spiritual advice. You'll always know what to say. Uh, You may even serve people in ways that look really selfless. Our external lives, they might look orthodox, emotionally engaged, and active in ministry. But here's the kicker. Our internal lives will be a mess, an absolute mess. Even though we might be constantly serving people externally, internally we'll be angry that people aren't loving us the same way that we're loving them. And ultimately we'll be angry that God is not giving us exactly what we want. We'll be constantly resentful. We'll be racked with anxiety, consumed with this imposter syndrome that if people see the real me, they're not going to want anything to do with me. So you spend all of your energy trying to keep up the facade. Uh, If we're we're on this foundation of self, it feels a little bit like, I don't know if you've seen the Great British Baking Show, um, but inevitably uh, there's a week where they're making cakes And everyone has this super original idea of like, oh, I'm going to make a a black forest cake. And like five of them make it, like all at the same time. And you have these five people making this exact same cake, and they're just constantly anxious, looking over their shoulder, like, oh, I've got to set myself apart from this other person. Like my cake has to be perfect. It has to taste better. Like that's what it feels like to be on this sandy foundation of self. You're constantly looking over your shoulder constantly comparing yourself, constantly anxious that what you're doing is not going to be good enough. So this is the foundation of self. But second in this passage, we see the solid foundation of Christ. Uh, What does it look like for a person to have Christ as their foundation? Uh, We see in verse 21, uh, Jesus says, the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in verse 24 and says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Uh, the first thing that kind of jumps out when you hear a description of a person who is, whose foundation is on Christ is that they do things. They do things. Uh, a mentor of mine used to say, being a Christian means you do stuff. 
And that's simple, but it's profound. Uh, Because a lot of the times, the way that we talk about something like grace, which we talk about a lot in RUF, uh, we talk about grace meaning uh, God completely accepts you based on Christ's work and not your own. And that is true. That is absolutely true. But the question remains, why does he do that? What is grace for? See, grace is for transformation. Grace is for uh, you being a new creation. Grace means you will do things. It, just mean, it doesn't mean you're going to do things in order to earn God's affection. It means you already have God's affection, so you are going to live a transformed life. You're going to do things. But what we see from this, this kind of picture that Jesus is giving us is that Jesus wants us to live lives that are orthodox, emotionally engaged, and active in ministry, <laughs> which if you're paying attention, that's exactly what the person who built their foundation on the, on the sand kind of looks like. He wants us to live lives that look suspiciously similar to their lives. So I think this kind of begs the question, uh, how do we know that we won't be like the other people who, who lived that way and then were told at the end of all things by Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me. What separates, uh, what separates a true Christian from someone who's not actually a Christian? Right? I think Jesus answers this in verse 21. He says that the one who knows Jesus and who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is a, is a real Christian who has their foundation on the solid rock of Christ But that kind of begs the question again, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? What does that mean? It seems pretty ambiguous. Uh, Fortunately, Jesus actually takes this up in John 6, uh, 40. I'll read this for you. It says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what we learn from John 6 is that doing the will of the Father is looking on Jesus and believing in him. That's what it means to do the will of the Father. That's how you know that you're going to get to the end and Jesus is not going to say to you, I never knew you, but instead is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is if you receive and rest in Jesus alone for salvation. And, and believing, this word here, when we hear it, we, we just kind of think of how you, like, maybe you believe in the Pythagorean theorem. Like, that's great, but it doesn't really change my life at all. But that's not how the Bible is using belief. Uh, belief in the Bible, it means not only acknowledging the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but it means owning it as your own. That when you look at the story of Jesus, you see your past, present, and future. You see that you have been united with him in his death, and you you will be united with him in his resurrection. When you see Jesus, you see who you are becoming. It means resting in the fact that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was saying that there is nothing left for you to do. He meant that. And he wants you to live out of that assurance. So doing the will of the Father means making your foundation the rock-solid, finished work of Jesus on your behalf. 
But the question still remains, uh, what difference does this make in your life? What difference does it make when this is your foundation? Uh, I want you to think with me for a second about a cause that you care about a lot. Some sort of cause that you care deeply about. So now imagine, with this cause, now imagine that you're the head of a nonprofit and you are kind of uniquely positioned to champion this cause that you care so much about. Uh, your organization has somehow cracked the code. Uh, maybe it's hypothetically, maybe it's global warming. And you have figured out global warming. Uh, and you know that you can do it. You feel confident, okay? Uh, but here's the problem. Your nonprofit's finances are an absolute wreck. You are $500,000 in the hole, and if you don't get that money by this time next week, your, your organization is going to be done. And so what do you do? Your solution is to throw a Hail Mary fundraiser event, right? So you call up everyone that you know. You invite all of the rich people with deep pockets in the community. They come. Uh, to your surprise, you end up packing out the house. You have this whole event. You're kind of sharing the story of your organization, all of that stuff. But as you're watching the night, you're realizing you're kind of losing the crowd a little bit. Like you look out and the people with deep pockets are kind of like looking at their watch, like when is this going to be over? And then you know that at the end of this meeting, you have to get up and give this great speech telling people why they should support your cause and then asking them to help you. You've got to ask them for money. Okay, how do you feel in that moment before you get up to speak? You feel a lot of pressure. You feel a lot of things that are riding on you. Like you have to somehow convince these disinterested people that your cause matters and for them to give you $500,000 in a week. Like that sounds terrible. You're, you're feeling anxious. Okay, now imagine uh, right before you're about to make the speech, you're about to get up, you're nauseous, uh, questioning everything, like why did I not stick with my engineering major in college. Why did I switch into political science and now I have to do this? Uh, you're questioning everything. Things aren't going well for you. And someone just comes up to you and uh, says, hey, I love the work that you're doing. And I think it's super important. And they hand you a check for $10 million. And they say, keep up the good work. Okay, now, how do you feel in that moment as you go up to speak. What's the difference there? You see, the pressure is off in that situation. You've already got everything that you need and more. When you get up to speak, you can do so from a place of internal peace. Like you're not worrying, if I mess up, like what's going to happen? Uh, and when you get up to ask people to join in, to, to partner with whatever you're doing, you're not doing so from a place of, like, just give me your money. You're doing so from a genuine desire to help them make a difference. And, y'all, that's the difference that basing your life on the solid foundation of Christ makes for you. You see, when you believe in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, it will change you. When you look and, and you see that Jesus has done everything necessary for you, your internal life will not be marked by anxiety, but will be marked by peace. You don't have to be angry internally because you're assured of God's kindness to you in Christ. And you see, when storms come, when, things, when difficult things come, you can be assured 
God is treating you as his child. He's not shaming you for something that you did wrong. So you can put down your anger. You don't have to spend your time comparing yourself because you know that you stand before God completely spotless. Completely spotless and accepted and loved. And you don't have to be anxious because you know that God has provided for your every need in Christ. So our internal lives will be marked by peace, but I think our external lives will be marked by devotion and service. By devotion and service. If our foundation is the finished work of Christ, we will do things. And we'll do them better than if our foundation is self. You see, when we grasp what has been done for us in Jesus, we can do things the right way, from the right foundation. We can be okay with doing things behind the scenes. We can pray to our Father in secret. We can give without drawing attention to it. You see, because we rest in the finished work of Jesus, our doing isn't resume building. When we do things, when, when we grow as Christians, when we do good works, it's a response to Jesus' resume being given to us. It's a joyful response to his grace. And when we know we're secure in Jesus, we can become the sort of person that Jesus has been describing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We can become a person who is poor in spirit. We can become a person who mourns over sin and death, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who is merciful, who is pure in heart, who is a peacemaker, and who is faithful under pressure. Friends, Jesus is the solid rock. He's the solid rock. He's the only foundation of your life. It's like the old hymn says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So as we come to kind of the conclusion of this semester series, right, been called the good life. Jesus is showing us how to live the good life. If you really want to live the good life, if you really want to be the sort of person that Jesus is describing here, your foundation has to be the finished work of Christ. Do you want to be less anxious? Do you want to be more at peace do you want to see those who are hurting move towards them and actually help them? Do you want to be an agent for change in your friend group, in your fraternity, in your sorority, in your family, in your community? Friends, if you want that, if you want to live this good life, the only foundation you can have is the righteousness of Christ, the finished work of Christ given to you as a gift. And when you understand that, you can more and more become the person he calls you to be. Let's pray.